0: Oops. All right. I do apologize. I'm going to blame Wayne, our visitor from California. I got to chatting with him. And really, it's his fault that I... Uh, no, I'm teasing. That was my bad. And, uh, but Dylan will get that for you. So let's pray, and we'll get going. Father, thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to learn this morning. Thank you for this passage in the book of Exodus. And I pray that you would help us as we study this plague of the frogs. Help us to see... What you intended for the Egyptians to see and the Israelites to see and may we make appropriate application for we pray all these things in Jesus name amen well some of you are aware that at the Baker home we have barn cats uh, we have cats that are whose sole existence in life is to help us keep the rodent population down now that it may surprise you to know that I am extremely allergic to cats um, They make me itch. They make uh, me sneeze. If I pet a cat, I have to immediately wash my hands. Uh, If if I touch the rest of my body with those hands, then I itch. And also, um, cats are cats. Essentially, remind us that there is a devil. Okay, and um, and so they're not. I don't find them to be terribly pleasant. In addition to being allergic to them. And so I know some of you cat people are rolling your eyes, and and it must be admitted, I do spoil the cats when Danielle is away, and uh, I do enjoy spoiling the cats a little bit. But you might ask, how is it that you came to have barn cats if you don't really enjoy having cats and if you're allergic to cats? Well, one year uh, at our house, the fields around our house, I've come to discover is mouse heaven. Uh, They love, uh, the mice are everywhere. And so for years, I fought a losing battle keeping the mice out of my garage. We always managed to keep them out of the house, but they'd get in the garage, and it was really hard to keep them out, and I would set traps and all sorts of things, and the traps became gross, and it was just, uh, it was not a great experience. Well, one year, we went off to vacation. I think we were gone for eight to 10 days, something like that. I got back home, got into my SUV, and there was a Terrible, terrible smell in my SUV. I turned the key on and cranked up the SUV. And it was very hot, and I turned the air conditioning on. And what did I hear next? But thump, 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 thump. I turned the car off, and the stench got worse. I realized that when I turned the car on but left the AC off, nothing happened, but when I turned the AC on, the thumping would resume. So I disassembled the little console, and I found the air compressor for the air conditioning unit. And lo and behold, while we were on vacation, a family of mice had made their home in the air, com- in the air conditioner compressor. And when I started the vehicle and turned the air conditioner on, they were all killed instantly, and it was the grossest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> and the stench was awful. And I walked inside, and I said, Danielle, we're getting cats. <laughs> we are fighting a losing battle, and I have to keep the cats out of my. Or I have to keep the mice out of my stuff. And so that is how the Baker family came to own cats. And guess what? I have never had mice problems again since the introduction of barn cats into the Baker home. Well, I tell that little story to just illustrate how frustrating it can be when an unwanted pest finds its way into the interior parts of your life. And what we are going to see today is God invading the private spaces of all the Egyptian people with the presence of these frogs. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about the significance of frogs in Egypt. But suffice it to say, I, I, you would do well to go home and imagine what it must have been like to be absolutely inundated with these little, cold, seemingly wet, but not wet creatures. And we're going to see what God was doing. Well, let's get a little context Uh, for this plague of the frogs. And we're going to begin just by recognizing that this is the second of the ten strikes. Remember, we we have come to call that word plague as plague, but really it means a hit or a strike. Not in the sense of a baseball strike, but in the sense of whacking something. And here, God is told that he's striking the land of Egypt, and this is our second of ten strikes. And in these lashes, in these plagues, God has multiple simultaneous purposes. As he's doing these things, he intends for deliverance. He intends to instruct theology. He intends to build a nation and create this crucible experience in the nation where they bond together as people. As we see this story move forward, Moses and Aaron emerge as leaders, and there's this Strong layer of leadership development, of course. There's worship. Worship is what underlines the whole thing. Worship is the reason God wanted his people to go. Worship is what they do after they escape. Worship is the reason that Pharaoh is to let the people go. Worship is the reason that God is selecting the plagues that he's selecting. Why frogs? Worship underlies that. Of all the animals that God could have chosen, worship underlies that. We learned last week that the first plague, the turning of the Nile into blood, uh, targets two things. It targets Egypt's national identity. The nation is, in a sense, birthed by the Nile. The Nile takes on this uh, deified personality that people worship at the Nile. They worship the Nile. All of their gods have dealing with the Nile. The Nile provides all of their economic vitality. The Nile makes them the breadbasket of the ancient world, even though it's a desert nation. Hardly any trees, but it's extremely fertile farmland because of the Nile. Transportation, farming, economics, all of it revolves around the Nile. And this river, which served as the grave for so many Hebrew infants thrown into it alive, that now judgment is coming on this nation that killed the innocents. And so the river turns to blood to show that God remembers and God is exacting his vengeance on this nation. The instrument that they used to torture the Israelites is now being used against them. All of those things God is intending to communicate. These plagues, as we go forward, are we need to remember they are fundamentally theological. God isn't, and sometimes you'll read this in a commentary, God isn't tending to annoy the Egyptians. God doesn't have it as his ultimate destiny to make Pharaoh frustrated. God isn't softening them up for some grand thing. No. God is intensely concerned about their theology. And I don't think that comes through more clearly in any of them, more so than the second plague. Let me say that a little more precisely. I fumbled that a little bit. The second plague shows us the depth that God wants us to see theologically in each of these judgments. And it's my intention this morning to show you how the plague of the frogs was at its core theological now you will be treated this morning to the rare occurrence of an alliterated outline okay when i made the outline i realized that four of my points were a's i was like wait a minute i'm only one a short so i went to thesaurus.com and sure enough there was an a readily available just for me and therefore just for you so enjoy The alliterated outline with A's, and even that is alliterated. I'm so happy with this alliteration Sunday. We'll have four points. Announcement, action, appeal, and aftermath. There's an announcement, and that's sort of how the text breaks down. The text divides up nicely into these four categories. There's an announcement, there's an action, there's an appeal, and then we have an aftermath. Let's talk about this announcement that occurs in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. We do need to look back to chapter 7 very briefly. Look at chapter 7, verse 25, and it probably should be that this verse goes with chapter 8, verse 1, um, or we should just have one really long chapter. Either way, these are connected. In chapter 7, verse 25, we read, seven full days passed after the Lord, and here's our word, had struck the Nile. Seven full days. A week had gone by, and this chronology becomes very important. Seven days after the river was turned to blood, and so what we see is that these events rule out any form of naturalistic explanation. God is keeping a schedule. God is on schedule. God is on time. And given the ecological disaster that took place with this river becoming poisonous to have the frogs emerge from it, was not only impossible, but miraculous. Now, true, there were swarms of frogs that took place in the ancient Near East or, and also out of the Nile, but nothing even approaching what <laughs> is being described in these verses. It rules out any naturalistic explanation. It also rules out the possibility of there being a really long gap of time. There's a, there's a, there's a theory that, that Moses is talking about these plagues over a really long amount of time, and what he's doing is pulling out natural phenomenon. So we could, we could for example, talk in our nation about the plague of the dust bowl. I was a plague for sure in, the, in this sort of sense. And then we could advance another 70 years and talk about a plague of heat. Well, these were both weather-related phenomenons, but they were spaced so far apart that you realize they're very different events. But by God putting them so close together, he's not only showing his power in it, he's showing his repeated power, his continual power, and the continual pressure that's beginning to build up on Pharaoh. The location of The announcement is important. Moses enters the court of Pharaoh. Apparently, Moses and Aaron have some sort of special entree now. They're the ones who struck the river. They've come back. Perhaps Pharaoh thinks they're going to make matters better. But Moses comes with a plea. He says that God is demanding that Pharaoh let the people go so that they might worship me. And so you know the demand that God makes becomes more and more terse. Look right here in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. I like this translation, let my people go, because it's short, it's to the point, it's four words. In Hebrew, it's only three. But in Hebrew, the phrase has this sense of purpose and causation. In other words, what, what God is telling Moses is, I'm laying this on you, buddy. You make it happen. You get my people out of there. This is on you. You need to cause this to happen. You need to take action. You need to step up. There's a very strong sense in a very terse way that God is confronting Pharaoh personally to send my people away immediately so that they might worship me, so that they might serve me. The word serve me is a a synonym for worship, that they might offer sacrifices to me. Later in this passage, Pharaoh says, I will let the people go so that they can sacrifice. He changes the word. Some commentators find meaning in that. I, I The word serve and the word sacrifice are used pretty much interchangeably in the Old Testament. And so I think Pharaoh got the point. Sacrifice is an inherent part of service and worship. And God is saying, My people did serve you, and now I want them to go serve me in worship and sacrifice. The other thing that this announcement does is for the very first time, it lets Pharaoh in on the fact that he will be affected. In fact, he will be principally affected, and he will be affected first. I want us to read what he says here. He says, the Nile shall swarm with frogs, that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed. And you say, well, can't that mean you all, as in all of you? No, in Hebrew, it's you singular. They're going to come to your bedroom first, buddy. And then in case you were curious about that, after they get into your bedroom and after they get into your bed, Then they'll go into the houses of your servants, and then they'll go into the houses of your people. The entire nation is going to be afflicted by this plague of frogs, but it's going to start with Pharaoh. Pharaoh hasn't yet been affected. He saw the staff of Moses turned into a serpent, and the only thing that came up missing were the staves of his magicians. When God struck the Nile where we are left with the picture of the Egyptians now burying, digging in the dirt, trying to find fresh water. And the picture is a Pharaoh with his feet up. I don't know what Pharaohs of the ancient world did to pass the time, but I kind of always imagine them to sit having somebody else pluck their grapes for them and they eat them in great luxury. And he's sitting, he's having fresh water served to him, but he doesn't know all that had to take place to get him that water, he doesn't even much care so long as he has it. People might tell him the nation is in ruins, but and he smells a faint odor, but still, he's not personally affected. But Moses lets him in on the fact that these frogs, these frogs are going to start with him. They're going to come teeming out of the Nile. The word swarm is an interesting word, by the way. It was used first in the creation narrative when it said that the the creatures, the insects that God created, swarmed in the waters. You can almost see. How how many of you have perhaps been in the southeast and you've seen a swarm of tadpoles? Anybody? It's it's kind of amazing. Imagine the entire Nile swarming (laughs) with countless tadpoles. Countless frogs, and they're going to start with Pharaoh. And that brings us to our second point, the action of this plague. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and the pools, and make frogs come out of the land of Egypt. There are frogs everywhere, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but it's important for us to understand the significance of frogs in ancient Egypt. I was aware of the fact that frogs played a significant role in their culture. Until my study this week, I was unaware of just how significant they were. In fact, if you were to go to the Metropolitan uh, Museum in New York City, they have a whole collection for Egyptology. And some of the most popular statues and figurines that they found in that nation are of frogs. There's all sorts of frogs. I asked my wife this morning, I said, I said, are frogs, what's the difference between a frog and a toad? And she goes, oh, there's huge differences between a frog and a toad. And I was like, okay, what are the differences? Their skin is totally different. And I said, okay, I, I can't, and it's true, their skin is totally different. The, there are many different frogs and toads in Egypt. I can't look at one and tell you if it's a frog or if it's a toad, but there are people that can There are big frogs, big bullfrogs. They, they crouched up, they are up to six inches long, and they can be quite fat. They have tiny little river toads that are an inch, inch and a half long, and they make A terrible racket, apparently. And all of these frogs took on deeply religious meaning in Egypt. Uh, The frogs played a big role in the pantheon. There were a couple of gods and goddesses that were uh, actually extremely important. There was the goddess Heket. She was the female goddess of fertility. And when a young lady was attempting to... Conceive and was having a hard time with that, she would deck out her body in little amulets of the goddess Heket as a good luck charm so that she might conceive and she would make sacrifices to the goddess Heket so that she might be able to conceive. There was another uh, god, and I, I don't know how to pronounce that name, Khnum, I would guess, or Khnum, something to that effect. And he was a male god with a frog face. Hecate also had a frog face, by the way. And this god of a frog face was the god of fertility and he was the god of the, 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 uh, the, the floods, the god of the agricultural fertility, the floods that would bring silt and cover the land. Uh, this god was in charge of that. In fact, In older Egyptian theology, he was the father figure of the Nile. But probably most important for this is that frogs religiously were a symbol of bodily resurrection in the afterlife. It's explained this way. Frogs were sacred creatures and were not hunted or cooked. Anybody in here ever had frog legs? Okay. Okay. Ralph and I have, yes. Brandon. I'm a good southern boy. I've had frog legs. I can tell you they're the exact halfway between fish and chicken. Okay? They taste, like if you combine fish and chicken into one dish, that's exactly what they would taste like. Fishy chicken or chickeny fish, whichever one you want. Fried up, they're pretty delicious, actually. But the... Egyptians didn't eat them, they were sacred animals. And during the winter, when the temperatures went down, and yes, I know Egypt doesn't have winters like we have, but they do have a colder season. The frogs would find their way into the mud along the banks of the Nile River, and they would go into hibernation. And it looked like they were dead. They wouldn't move, they wouldn't eat. They would sit there still as a stone, And then when the weather warmed up, guess what came back to life? The frogs. And so the Egyptians attributed this to the power of bodily resurrection. And the gods of the frogs were what brought a body up out of the grave in the afterlife. And so to this day, archaeologists, when they find caskets of Egyptian mummies, what do they find? but little frog statues, and amulets in the caskets because the Egyptians worshipped this God as the God of the resurrection. God, of course, takes personal offense at this. And he begins to show them that he is mightier than any of those gods. I want you to look at chapter 8, verse 6, because something... Moses does something interesting there. He personifies the frogs. Let me read this to you literally, and I think you'll get a chuckle out of it. Verse 6. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt. And here's the difference of translation. And the frog came up and covered the land of Egypt. One frog, one giant frog enormous personified enormous it was it was almost as though and moses is not saying it was only one frog that's clear but it was they acted all together under one command and they acted so uniformly and instantaneously it was as if one giant frog monster raised its head up out of the Nile and covered and sat on top of the entire land. The frog appeared, and the frogs were everywhere. Egyptians did not have beds like we would think of beds. They had um, usually uh, wood-covered floors, and they would have a bed mat that they would lay on the floor. Egyptians did not have shelving for their kitchens like we might consider shelving. Everything was floor height. And the frogs, when they invaded the land, would be everywhere. They would sit on you when you were sleeping. They would get into your pantry. They would, as the text says, be in your kneading bowls. I, I, parents, parents, I have children, small children. I have two children sitting right here. We have children who like to play with gooey things. They have something called slime, okay? More than once in the middle of the night, I have walked out onto the wood floor and stepped on cold slime (laughs) sitting on the wood floor. Schaefer says it wasn't him, okay? (laughs) We'll blame Gracie. She's not here this week. She's with her grandma, so we'll blame her, okay? Okay, they agree to that. They think that's fine. Imagine being an Egyptian. You cannot sleep. Because what do frogs do? They croak. They ribbit. They make those noises all night long. How many of you have tried to go camping in the south or you've sat next to a lake in Georgia or Louisiana or Alabama? What do you hear all night long? Croak! It's deafening. Imagine a thousand of those in your house. You can't sleep, so you get up to use the restroom. And you step on a frog and squish it to death. And you got to clean it up the next morning. Finally, you fall asleep with all the croaking. And you wake up and there on your pillow is a frog looking at you right in the face. They were everywhere. Big frogs, little frogs, croaking frogs, slimy frogs, toads, you name it. They're everywhere. They're all over the country. It's more than a nuisance. It keeps you up at night. And what happens to people when they don't sleep? What happens to people when they aren't eating like they should be eating? They are grouchy. I was having a laugh, meditating on what that must have been like. Can you imagine... The government spin machine coming out. Seven days to flatten the curve of the frogs. (laughs) Frog legs. You can do it. A cheap, healthy source of protein. (laughs) Just all sorts of government slogans designed to somehow make you feel like you could do something or be happier under this plague of frogs. It was... Of all the plagues, I told my wife, of all the plagues, of all the plagues, there, if I could have seen one, it would have been this one. I don't I wouldn't have wanted to live through it, but I would have loved to have seen it. Now, very briefly, my it's probable that the frogs did not affect the Israelites. It doesn't say it here specifically in the text. Other miracles later on say that the Israelites were not affected by it. But the text says several times, the frogs would come up on you and on your people. You, your people, your land. It was very much you, 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 Egyptian-centric. See, And so even though it's not explicitly stated that the Israelites were sheltered from the frogs, I think there's enough implicit evidence to say that the Israelites were, great, were either spared this completely or greatly sheltered from it. It's possible that they were affected, but I just, I don't think that's the case. Well, Pharaoh in one last time seeks out the magicians and they are able to add to the problem but they are not able to solve it. They offer one last deception and this is the last time we will see them mimicking what God has done. That brings us to our third point, the appeal. We'll move a little more quickly as we go through. Pharaoh... (laughs) as the magicians make more frogs, and you can see him almost braiding his magicians. Guys, the last thing I need is more frogs. (laughs) And you have somehow, by your secret arts, only multiplied my problems. Can't you make them disappear? Well, they can't. And so Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron into his presence, and Pharaoh offers this appeal. And this isn't the last time Pharaoh will do this, but it's really remarkable. And again, we see sort of another layer in this story. We see a layer of human nature. As God begins to appeal and change Pharaoh, we see this man rebelling against the Lord, but rebelling in little different ways. And it's so true to how people deal with God, once God starts to deal with them, you see Pharaoh wriggling, as it were, under the condemnation of God, and he's trying to say just enough to get him out from under the problem, but not enough to where he comes under the authority of God. It's very true to human nature what happens. and Pharaoh's confession is amazing. He makes three concessions. He admits that the frogs are a spiritual problem, The solution is prayer. Pray for us. It's not, do you have some some pesticide that will rid us of the frogs or some other animal that can come and take them away? No, he he knows the solution is prayer. It's spiritual in nature. He admits this. He also admits that Yahweh is the only one who can help. Heket, the goddess of the frogs, uh, this other god, what was his name? Uh, i've got to find it. Um, it doesn 't matter. The, the frog with the male frog with the man face, he can 't take him away either. Yahweh, the chief God in now pharaoh 's mind, the one and only God, only he can help, and he 's confessing that Yahweh is the superior God. And Pharaoh also confesses in this appeal to Moses that, that he himself was in the wrong. Pharaoh is admitting that he's in rebellion. He says, please take away the frogs and I will relent. I will let the people go so that they can worship me. And so here we have all the right words of a confession. God reigns. I was wrong. This is a spiritual need. But what we see is, a, though he's saying all the right words, we see a failure in the heart, to follow through on that. He doesn't really mean it. He doesn't, I shouldn't say it that way. To say really mean it means that there's an intensity to it. What I mean is he doesn't truly mean it. There's something in him that still believes that he is somehow in charge. Now Moses does something remarkable when Pharaoh comes to him with this appeal. Moses defers to him, and he says, I will give you, in the NIV it translates it, I will give you the honor of deciding what day the frogs go. It's a really challenging Hebrew phrase, and that's probably as good a translation as any. I will defer to you, Pharaoh. And so now, whatever day Pharaoh picks, he knows that it's God who did it, and not Moses who's engineered it. Pharaoh is the one who picked this, and Pharaoh says something famous. Pharaoh, Moses says, I'll give you the honor to decide when these frogs will be taken away. And what does Pharaoh famously say? He says, tomorrow. Now, let's stop there very quickly. Popular preachers often say things that are off theologically and biblically. Okay, I could give many examples, but you've heard many sermons that say wrong things. And commentators take particular delight in dismantling those very things that popular preachers say. This, I, I have heard many a popular sermon on Pharaoh's stall tactics in saying tomorrow. And preachers will sort of pile on that. And the commentators have uniformly tried to dismiss that by saying what Pharaoh actually meant was at the earliest possible convenience. Pharaoh wasn't stalling. He wasn't saying tomorrow. He was saying tomorrow in the sense of hurry up. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you I don't, I don't buy the commentators on that because the book of Exodus doesn't bear that out. First of all, Pharaoh doesn't take it seriously. Nor will he take the future one seriously all up until the last one. Furthermore, Hebrew is a very robust language. And Hebrew has a word for today. And Hebrew has a word for immediately. Hebrew has a phrase for right now. And Hebrew has a word for tomorrow. And tomorrow means tomorrow. Tomorrow. And if you want to see other passages, 823, 829, 9, 5, 10, 4, 19, 10, tomorrow means a delay of time to give you time. I'm going to wait to give you time. That's the idea. And in all those passages I just mentioned, that's the notion. Furthermore. In chapter 12, verse 42, Moses highlights that God needs to do something today, right now, and the idea is immediate. And again, that's also in the book of Exodus. And so, when Pharaoh said tomorrow, I think Pharaoh meant tomorrow. I think Pharaoh wanted a little extra time to try to figure a way out of it. Perhaps one last-ditch effort. Perhaps if you root for a football team, you know when there's two seconds left on the clock and your team is down by more than three points. You're hoping your team can just get the ball up close to midfield so that your quarterback can launch a long pass into the end zone. And maybe, just maybe, one of your guys will come down with it. You, you guys know what that pass is called, right? It's called the, the, the Hail Mary. One last ditch effort to save the game. And I, I, think, I think that's what Pharaoh is doing here. He wants one last ditch effort to try to pull it out of his own accord. But this is supernatural. He can't help it. He can't do anything about it. And so tomorrow comes with no change. And so now we find the aftermath. And in the aftermath, Moses prays. And amazingly, amazingly, the Lord does exactly what Moses says. The Lord does exactly as Moses says. Moses prays. And God answers. And here we see yet another layer in the development of a leader. Moses Ask something of the Lord, and the Lord, as it were, obeys him. It's remarkable. We see this team now. Moses and God working together to deliver the people. And God listens to Moses and the frogs. They die right in their place. They die right in their place. The Egyptians suddenly are not so worried about the lack of bricks in their nation. The Israelites aren't worried about the shortage of straw because they've got millions and millions of frog carcasses that they have to gather before they start stinking up the place. And they're ineffective at it. And so they start gathering the frogs in huge piles. My guess is they gathered them into huge piles let them bake in the sun for a while and then burned them, it would be my guess. Perhaps they employed slaves to take them back and put them into the river, hoping that the river would carry the dead frogs away. Either way, either way, it stinks. It stinks terribly. And again, what God is doing is using the Nile to undercut their pantheon of gods and show them that God is in charge and also God is showing that he remembers how Egypt used the Nile. Let me back up just a moment. Do you remember what the frog goddess was a symbol of? Uh, Human fertility. Do you remember what God's response was when the Egyptian babies were ordered to be thrown into the Nile? The response was that the Israelites swarmed. God gave them babies, many babies, many, many, many babies. And suddenly now, the frogs swarm. And what God was showing them is that he is in charge of human reproduction. He is in charge of the swarming. He is in charge of this river that took life. He is in charge of all these other things that the Egyptians have attributed to false gods. And God is in charge of it all. And I want us to notice last in the aftermath, the last part of this aftermath, is that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. There's respite, there's stench, yes, but you're not stepping on frogs in the middle of the night anymore. There's stench, but there's no more croaking, keeping you up. Pharaoh feels this rest, he feels this let off, and he hardens his own heart. And there's something volitional about this. At some point, Pharaoh said, I'm still not going to listen. I'm still not going to do this. Perhaps one of his officials said, you said you would let them go. And Pharaoh says, well, I changed my mind. Pharaoh hardens his heart and decides he's not going to let them go. Well, Moses knew this, of course. He knew that God had promised there would be many plagues and that Pharaoh would not release the Israelites until the firstborn was killed. And Moses prays for him anyway. Moses continues to give him every possible opportunity to repent and to change. And Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. Let's make two applications before we wrap up this morning. Number one, dear friend, repentance is a gift of grace that must not be taken for granted. I can't, I don't know how many times this has happened, but very frequently people will come for counseling, for help. An event has taken place that has sort of shocked them. Life has gotten bad for a while. They come for help. They talk a big game to the person helping them. They say all the things that Pharaoh would have said. The solution is a spiritual one. Only God can help me. I am in rebellion. They say all those things. But then life starts to ease up a little bit. The event that has caused them to seek help is smoothing over a little bit. There appears to be some resolution, even though the core problem has never been dealt with. And they just fly away from it. They just decide that they don't need that after all. I would beg you not to do that. God has come to you and he has laid the need for repentance on your heart. And repentance isn't just agreeing with God. That's confession. Repentance is agreeing with God and going the other direction. It's plucking out your eye and throwing it away. John the Baptist says bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Genuine repentance has actions that come that follow behind it. And repentance is a gift. It's a grace that God does not guarantee will be there for you tomorrow. So take it while the gift is there. Number two, when God addresses a spiritual deficiency in your life, don't delay to follow through on the Spirit's work. Get that immediate attention. Keep a short account with the Lord. Deal with that right away. If these plagues illustrate anything, it's that God is not going to take the pressure off of you until he has finished his work. He's going to keep a hand on you because he loves you. He wants you to change. And your holiness is a paramount concern to him. So he's not going to be like so many men and hit you and walk away. He's going to come and lay his hand on you and hold it there with increasing pressure and strength. And you will not break God's determination to help you. And so, I say this with a smile on my face, knowing that I many times have resisted the Lord's work in my life. And I will tell you, when God comes and he sets his hand on you, be quick to let him have his way. Keep a short account with him. And his grace and mercy will flow to you. And you will find him to be so dramatically good and loving and gracious and forgiving. And all the fears that you have of retribution and harshness are baseless. And you will find them to be foolish and say, I wish I had gone to God so much sooner. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to respond immediately to the grace of your request for repentance may we let you have your way in our lives. You're good. And you're the great physician who's trying to weed out these diseases in our soul. And I pray that we would relent to your gracious and powerful hand. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for your good attention. Nathan's going to come now and lead us in a song. I'm going to head to the back and would love to shake your hand on the way out. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your Sunday, and Lord bless.